Now, up to this point, uh, as you know, we have been dealing with the uh, beginning of the Laodicean church period, basically the cause and the effect of it. I think it's really important that you basically understand every aspect of it, and so we've been taking our time. Uh, you know, this is where, in one area of history that I'm somewhat of an expert on, having lived through it and been part of it and seen it, and uh, so I can give a little better insight maybe than I can on 1500, 1600, and those places back there where you got to rely on other guys that wrote about it. But uh, I have shown you very carefully here, uh, you remember we started out uh, this section, and I told you how that the real thing that, things that killed uh, the Philadelphian church, uh, we talked about neo-orthodoxy, we talked about neo-evangelicalism, and then we talked about the establishment of the charismatic church. And uh, they, really lead to, they really lead the way in, in this around the turn of the century. And, um, you know, it, it always goes this way in every country, and I don't care. It's almost, you know, it's like I always say, you know, people don't learn the lessons of history. No country ever went into apostasy like America is in. And, uh, you know, I, I know that today is Election Day, you know, and uh, everybody's looking to kick the Democrats out and put the Republicans in. And one of the number one rules you'll learn about uh, the world and history uh, that really is probably the single biggest thing that you'll, if you ever grasp it, that will teach you more, and that is the, the reality that no matter what happens today, any more than what happened last year or five years ago or ten years ago or what happens in five years from now, nothing really ever changes. Unless God is in it and the Word of God is part of it, what the world does is just repackage it, reshape it. And you'll find that the world looks at the Democrats as the problem, kick the Democrats out, put the Republicans in, or the independents, whoever you want, and that's going to fix it. Truth of the matter is, all unregenerate men are still unregenerate men, and they all have their private agendas. Nothing is really going to change. Nothing really has ever changed down through history. Uh, the devil has just walked down through history, changing clothes, garments, and uh, changing the scenery, uh, but really nothing ever really changes. And that's exactly what you see when you come down through church history. And uh, we go from the church of the open door, Revelation chapter 3, 8, and next thing you know, the door is shut. We're in a church of the closed door, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, to understand all of this, you know, we got to go back and, and, and a ways and review some former things. And what I've done up to this point is shown you the three major causes that, that opened it up in the 1900s, early on, end of the 1800s. But the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, there's some things that were going on for a long time that, that really help you put it into perspective. I, I took and I showed you the generations of guys. You know, I showed you the, the last what I call the transitional pastors <clears throat> that I showed you last time, you know, the guys that I was familiar with and how that, that transition was working its way through. And here we are today, you know, uh, where Christianity, Bible Christianity is completely, uh, is, is nowhere now. What we see here from the beginning of the 20th century up to the 21st century is the greatest 
power on earth for the word of God, which was the Baptist, have now been relegated to obscurity and uh, by their own choice, by the way. And now the, the three groups that started the century are the three groups that are in power in the, at the end of the century or the beginning of the next century, 21st century, and that is the neo-Orthodoxy, the neo-Evangelicals, and of course the Charismatic Church. They are the supreme rulers of what we would call Christianity today, and the Bible doesn't figure at all. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, first thing that happened with God's people, and this is so true, did not learn the lesson from histories. And the ones that saw it were swept under the carpet as heretics, much like we are, troublemakers, church splitters, you know, preachers of hate. And therefore, the, the, uh, the status quo uh, just went on, and the lessons of history began to repeat themselves. They also failed to see the real enemy because uh, of their own foolish pride and education, uh, which the real enemy is the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, uh, they got sidetracked on issues that were really of no value, and they really missed the whole deal. One, two great things come out of church history, for me, anyhow. And uh, if, if I was to boil church history and everything down that we've talked about and really everything we're going to talk about into just two basic concepts, here's what it would be. The devil has a church. The devil's goal down through history, Old Testament and New Testament, was through force or through coercion or through whatever is to get the whole world to belong to his church. We see that in the Old Testament because his church in the Old Testament is Baal worship and he succeeds with the nation of Israel and they go after Baal worship wholeheartedly. So we see that in that particular case, it worked very well. In the New Testament, we see the same thing happening. We've talked about the uh, Rome being in power right up through into the Dark Ages, and we see that this time in the New Testament, by force, by sheer force of, of killing anybody who does not become a Roman Catholic, again, the Roman Catholic Church tries to force everybody to join the church. And that was, her, that, was her, that was one of the major things that you see coming out of history. It's nothing more than the devil has a church, and by hook or crook or by, by force or by whatever, uh, he will try to get everybody on planet Earth to join his church. And that's really what church history is all about. God getting people to join his church, the devil getting people to join his church. Now, obviously, the devil knew that uh, there would be people that would not join that church. And, of course, he knew that. And so the second thing that the devil does that I think is basically what history all revolves around the first thing he wanted to do is get everybody on planet Earth to join his church. When he found out there would be a bunch of people, i.e. Baptists and other people that would not join his church because they knew what it was, uh, the devil said, okay, stay in your church and then, uh, then just do this. If you won't come to my church, stay in your church, but just use my Bible. And those two things is what church history is all about. It's about God's church, the devil's church. God's Bible, the devil's Bible. And what God wanted to do was establish his church with his word. What the devil wanted to do is establish his church with his word. So very simply, history, church history is nothing more than people being so blinded and so stupid because they get focused on the wrong thing. And we talk about that in history, but that's exactly what happened to every one of us. This is why our church always has to keep preaching the word of God and holding the line and, and putting it out whether people like it or not. Because what happens is so easily, if you don't have a hard line approach to things today, 
you easily they get sidetracked and you get caught up in things that really have no value in it and you 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 then you begin to go down and you know you get caught up in all kinds of things and that's exactly what happened and today you know the devil says hey stay in your church no problem go to your baptist church be a part of it it's a good deal because the devil was smart enough to know that if he couldn't get you in his church he would let you stay where you were he just would get you to use his Bible. And at the end of the day, he accomplishes the same purpose. And uh, he's destroyed Christianity today. We as a group here are kind of like the Amish. We're the outcasts. Anybody who believes the book, takes a stand for the book, is going to be relegated uh, as outcast. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it won't be long before... You know, people like us will be the problem for everything because that's just the way it works. You see, you better get used to it. Take any Baptist church. You get people that don't want to do what's right, they always blame the pastor. It's just the way it works. And or they'll blame leaders in the church because they don't want to do what's right. They'll always won't say, I don't want to do what's right. So they want to maintain their spirituality. So they start blaming on the people that do do what's right. That's just the way it works. That's just the system. Well, take that to a bigger scale. In time, what will happen is when the Christian world, i.e., doesn't want to do what's right, and you and I as a church want to do what's right, you know exactly what will happen? Same thing that happens on an individual basis now. They'll blame churches like this for being the problem. And that's just the way it's going to go. You can see it just as sure as you and I are, you know, sitting here tonight that that's, that's how it will work. Most people can't see that because most people are caught up in it. And God's people, you know, they did not learn from history. And the ones that saw it were basically swept under the carpet. They failed to read the, see the real enemy. And I think that's a, uh, that's, a, that's a hard thing to do today because she has covered herself so well. And through the subtleties of Rome and scholarship and education, they've all taken the place of God in Christianity. And, uh, you know, they, that all removes the love of, for God's word. So what I want to do tonight, now that we've, we went through these guys and you know who they are, I want to go back a long way and I want to, I want to begin to look at uh, uh, what took place that, that brought about this because this was no overnight thing. And I want to talk, we've already talked about the Reformation and, and a lot of this in church history, we'll talk about segments, we'll move on and then I'll, I'll come back and put the rest of the details in. And uh, tonight I want to I want to go back beyond 1900 with the evangelicals and the and the neo orthodox and the charismatic movement. I want to show you how the the root of that goes back even two or three hundred years before that, because I want to talk to you tonight, or at least begin to talk to you tonight about this uh, something that you really got to understand uh, in church history, and that is the what is commonly called the Counter Reformation. And, you know, the old adage, you know, the devil was down, but he wasn't out. And certainly the, the Roman Catholic Church lost her grip on the world uh, when the Reformation took place. And we've studied the Reformation, and we know now that the Reformers were just the blocking defense that allowed the Bible believers to open up the door to the Philadelphian church age and take the word around the world. But the truth of the matter is the devil was knocked down, but he was not knocked out. And what happens is that, uh, and this is what people fail to see, because they don't approach the history and the Reformation and those things from a Bible believer's standpoint and use the Bible as their textbook, then they get caught up in this. Now, the Counter-Reformation in Europe took place about three or four different ways. 
One of the things that they did during this time, uh, you know, they, they stepped up to kill as many Bible believers as they could in the, in the, in the, in the Roman Catholic-controlled countries. That would be Spain. That would be France. You see, the Reformation takes place mostly in England and in Germany and in Holland. You have the Dutch Baptist, the German Baptist. They're called the Pietist sometimes, and the English Baptist. But France... Um, you know, Spain uh, never really were part of the Reformation. And uh, they always stayed loyal to the Catholic Church. And so it was through these Catholic kings that, you know, he tried to kill uh, the Bible believers. And then the second thing was that Rome uh, ordered the, uh, the upstale of the Inquisition to be beefed up. And the Inquisition was basically carried out in Spain other countries did it also, but Spain was the, uh, the great uh, infamous country of the Spanish Inquisition. The third thing that they did was uh, they developed what is known today as the indexed, just like an index card, an index finger, index. The index was the Roman Catholic Church's way of, of keeping uh, in, under control what uh, people would read. And the index was a list of books that the Roman Catholic Church forbid, forbade, uh, forbid their people to read because they wanted to remember now that it was during this time that the printing press come out. So now you had books, literature, pamphlets. Martin Luther publishes many of his works, as do all the reformers. And so they're circulating around now for the first time where people can get literature, they can get books, and many of these books are anti-Catholic books written by the Reformers. And you'll find that many of the people down the line who became great preachers were influenced by the writings of the Reformers. Martin Luther was influenced many, many people with his writings. And of course, before the printing press, you couldn't get the writings. But now that the printing press has come out with Gutenberg, you know, and everything is, is ready to go, and, and they're getting it. So the Roman Catholic Church comes up with what they call an indexed. An indexed is a list of books that you're forbidden to read that will keep their people from ever getting the light. Obviously, the King James Bible is on that index, along with, you know, and that index is still in effect today. It's never been taken away, and it's just been added to. And, you know, uh, most of all of the books that... Uh, uh, that uh, have anything to do with any truth or on that or in that index. Now, the the fourth thing that they did, and we've talked about this before, but we're going to look at it how they went to work on it, is was the creation of the Society of Jesus, or we know them as the Jesuits. And the Jesuits, and we've talked about this before, I guess was the single number one uh, thing that really countered the Reformation. And uh, You know, people don't see it, they don't understand it, but while God was doing all of the great things that he was doing, the devil was underground working to undo it. And you see the same thing back in the Old Testament. The pattern of history is locked in. Well, God, back in Genesis 6, while God was planning the Abraham coming up in chapter 11 and calling out the Abraham to the nation of Israel, what was the devil doing? He was underground bringing down the sons of God to create a rated giants to counter what God was doing. See, the same thing when the nation of Israel is down in Egypt. 
God forging them 430 years to be a strong nation. What's the devil doing? He's bringing down the sons of God again and, and building giants over in the land where they're going to go so that when they finally come out and, and peek over the edge and look at that, my goodness, there's 50,000 giants over there and they don't go in for 40 years. That's the way the devil does it. So it's no surprise that during the greatest period of time of church history that the devil uh, is underground. And the main underground movement is the, is the, is the uh, militant actual, in, intellectual educators, which are called the Jesuits. And the greatest thing that Rome did was to go underground in the next 200 to 300 years. She basically undoes in Europe what the Reformation did. The Reformation started in Germany. It moves into Switzerland. It moves into England. It moves into Holland. It moves into the the low countries in, in many places in Europe. But the truth of the matter is the gospel is moving in that west, east to west direction. And 200 to 300 years after the Reformation, the gospel is now all around the world, and the gospel is in America, but it's dead in Europe. And the reason why it's dead in Europe is because of the Jesuits. And we want to talk about what they did. And uh, the next 200, 300 years, they take control and influence every country in Europe through basically four things. The first thing that they do is education. The Jesuits infiltrate every university in Europe, and they go in as professors of everything that you could imagine, and they basically take control of the young minds that are coming up. Did you ever wonder why, and most of you uh, are not aware of this because you're too young, some of you older ones will remember this, every revolution down through history started with young people in colleges. And in my day, it was the revolution against the war in Vietnam. And uh, it was the colleges that were against it. The colleges have always been against anything that has been stable and right in this country as they did around the world because the devil always goes after the young minds that are impressionable. When communism got its, got its uh, seed in America... It got it through the the learning institutions uh, of the colleges of this country because that's exactly what the Jesuits did. You see, the Jesuits understood that they could not get uh, the people that were already part of the Reformation. They understood that. They were willing to cut their losses on that. But they also understood that while they were doing it, the people that were 18, 19, 20, maybe up to 30, they were the leaders of Europe for the next couple of hundred years. So they infiltrated all the educational systems in Europe. Later they did it in America, and we'll see here, maybe, I don't know, we'll get to it tonight, but we'll see it. They, they, they certainly begin to infiltrate them into Europe. And what they do is, is they begin to take back the minds of the people and begin to shape those minds against what God was doing in the Reformation. And you're going to find that the kings that come out of this period of time in Europe from this point on, it's an amazing thing. But most people never see it because they're too busy watching to see if the chiefs are going to win or not. They don't spend any time looking at the Bible and history. But the most amazing thing that every leader in Europe 
every leader in Europe from this point on up to where we're at today is either Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, or some amalgamated mess that it has ties back to the Roman Catholic Church. Most of them are Roman Catholic. We'll get a list of them here after a while. The second thing that they do is bring in philosophy because they knew that philosophy would destroy any semblance of truth because that's what philosophy does. Philosophy is, has no truth to it. Philosophy is assimilation of a bunch of goofy stuff that there is no truth, but we can all find a common ground, but that common ground is not any truth. We'll talk about that later and how that develops. I'm going to walk you all through this. I'm just giving you the four of them now. The third one would be science. And, of course, this is where that they, again, uh, begin to take all of these things and begin to uh, steer it away from the Bible. You're going to find that when Charles Darwin, who around the beginning of the 1800s, comes up with the theory of evolution, which we know as today, that permeates all of America in our schools, you'll find that Charles Darwin, as all the leaders, as all of the philosophers, as everybody here, was trained at Cambridge for the, for the ministry before he ever became a scientist and come up with his monkey theory. In other words, his thoughts about evolution is shaped by the Jesuit teaching that he gets. And of course, I'm going to show you that uh, evolution did not start with Darwin. It goes all the way back through the philosophers to the Babylonians. And, and uh, you know, again, again, nothing ever really changes. It just gets reshaped and repackaged and, and then resold. But nothing really ever changes. And then the fourth thing was religion. <clears throat> You'll study in church history uh, what is commonly called the Oxford Movement. The Oxford Movement was the Jesuits, Roman Catholic Jesuits, going into Protestant seminaries, graduating as Protestant pastors from those Protestant seminaries, and then going and taking Protestant churches to bring them back to the Roman Catholic Church and destroy the teachings of the Reformation. Now, those four things right there is what killed Europe. If you went to Europe today, you would find a Europe that has absolutely no knowledge of God, no care to have a knowledge of God. There's no morals. It's amoral. Everything is just absolutely, it's about as, it's about as, uh, as, as godless that you could ever hope to find it. And the reason why it is, and just 400 years ago, it was the hotbed. There was a time when Czechoslovakia, that country doesn't even exist anymore. But there was a time with John Huss in Czechoslovakia when the whole nation was a saved nation. There's a time when England, the whole nation, there's a time when, 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 when Holland was absolutely permeated with the gospel and everybody was a Christian. And in fact, there are no Christians there today. And there is no knowledge of God there today. All the churches there are the great cathedrals that very frankly, if you've ever been to Europe, um, that uh, nobody goes to church anymore. The churches there today are museums. People go there to see what it was like, 
how that they buried people in the floor and the walls and the catacombs and, and these big, beautiful buildings that are go back to the 9th century, the 12th century. They love to go to see the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther nailed, nailed his 99 thesis to the door, 595 thesis to the door. And they love to go to those places, but on Sunday, those places are empty. And the pastors in Europe today, many of them are atheists. And uh, they do not even believe that there's a God anymore. And uh, they find no contradiction between that, not whatsoever, because religion has become a philosophy. It's become a science. And this is what the Jesuits did in America, or excuse me, in Europe, and now in time, they're doing that, they've done that to America, and America is about 50 years behind where Europe is right now and moving toward it very fastly. The, the Jesuits infiltrate every educational institution in Europe and slowly uh, begin to introduce the humanistic principles on which Europe and then a little later on America finally uh, gets destroyed. Every king and queen and leader of Europe from 1650 right up to the time period that we live in was trained and educated by these educational systems and later on, this same system is introduced into the American educational system uh, as a breeding ground for a revolution and murder and government takeover. Uh, the news medias in these countries are all connected to it. The Roman Catholic Church, without a doubt, runs everything on this planet, one way or the other. I think some of the greatest series of books that you'll ever get your hands on are written by a guy who is dead now, and he died of natural causes. I'm surprised that he, he didn't get killed long before he died. Well, a guy by the name of Avril Manhattan. Avril Manhattan probably was the greatest authority on the Roman Catholic Church in the history of the world. And I don't even know if he was saved. Uh, he was a guy from Britain, from England, and uh, he wrote a number of books that are out of print now. In fact, when you could buy them for like 4 or $5, the last I saw on the, on the website that they were going for like $80 a book. And uh, I was happened to be lucky enough to, uh, to pick up a couple of sets years and years ago. And, uh, but he, uh, his material is absolutely incredible, and it's undeniable. And he talks, one of his books is called uh, the, the, uh, the Washington, Vatican, Moscow Alliance, where he goes into the politics of, uh, of, uh, of how it all ties together. It's, un, it's, un, it's unbelievable, and it's, it's unrefutable. I mean, there's nothing you can say. And, um, you know, it always amazed me, and I've told people all the time uh, when they don't, who don't like Avril Manhattan and his books because of what he says, I said, well, you've got to say one thing about him, and they say, well, what's that? And I said, you know what, and all the things that he wrote, and he wrote some damaging things, never one time did the Roman Catholic Church ever take him to court for slander. And the reason why they never took him to court for slander, because in a court of law, he would win the case because of the fact that he's got. He wrote another one on uh, Vatican billions, that he shows you the net worth and the holdings of the Roman Catholic Church in the financial world today. And, uh, you know, the Bank of, of, uh, of Rome, uh, the, the, the uh, Vatican has their own banking system. They have their own series of banks. They buy up gold. The net worth of their artifacts is something in the, in the trillions of dollars. And just the artifacts that they have. 
Uh, and of course, uh, you know, he talks about the holdings that they have. They own the Miller Brewing Company. They own the, the, the St. Louis Rams. Uh, they, it's endless of what they own. And he has a whole list of things that are in there. Another great book that he wrote that I think is, for me personally, is probably the greatest book that he wrote was the book of Vietnam, Why Did We Go? And um, it's, a, it's a great book based on the fact that uh, it shows you the real issue uh, behind uh, what's going on and it shows you the Jesuit infiltration. number of books that he wrote. And he's, a, he's, a, he's probably the foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church in the world. Of course, he's dead now. But uh, we see that every king and queen and leader in Europe in the next couple of hundred years is now uh, is, 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 is taught and trained and their mind is shaped exactly the way that they wanted to go. And the way they wanted to go was against the Reformation. Now, let me tell you a little unknown fact about the Catholic Church. Catholic Church really doesn't care what you believe as long as you never leave the Catholic Church. In Africa, the Roman Catholic missionaries down there will allow voodoo to go on. They'll allow you to have a witch doctor. They'll allow all kinds of things to go on as long as the tribe gets baptized Catholic, and that's all they care about. They, they, they never care about what you believe. That's why the greatest, bloodiest murderers in the last part, uh, all through the 20th century have been Roman Catholics. And uh, it's, just, it's just never been part of it. Roman Catholic Church has always been against the, uh, the nation of Israel. I told you Sunday how that was just in Vatican II, where they have, you know, expunged the Jews from being Christ killers. And, of course, uh, that's why she sided with the uh, Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler being a Roman Catholic, and, the, uh, and all that took place there. And uh, after the war, all the Nazi war crime criminals got down into South America, which is all Roman Catholic, with forged papers from a, a, a Catholic monastery uh, for, for monks in uh, Germany, and uh, were all exported down there safely. And then uh, went to work for the, uh, the little Hitlers down in South America. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing to put it all together and see how it all goes. The news media, NBC, CBS, ABC, AP, NIS, UP, all of them, all and all of the reporters, they all follow the line that comes out of Rome. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're going to find it probably, and, I, and I'm not saying that he is a Jesuit uh, in the sense of that he's, he, he's put uh, in there by the Roman Catholic Church. He may be. But the greatest example of a Jesuit today and how he operates and how he works would be Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity. And most people really like them a lot because of all the good things that they say. Uh, the bottom line is they'll tell you what you want to hear, but you will find that their agenda is purely Roman Catholic. And uh, they are two great examples of how the Jesuits work. I'm not saying they're Jesuits. I'm just saying that they, I knew, do know this, they both were trained by the Jesuits for where they went to school. And uh, in America today, you know, just about every, every college, secular college, without exception, is Jesuit controlled and run, even though it may not be a Jesuit school like the one down here uh, in Kansas City. Uh, but they are, they are, the Jesuits have taken them over as far as the mindset of their teaching. And most of the Bible colleges, too. And uh, most people just don't know that or they just don't care. And, of course, the, the proof of what I'm saying lies in the fact that by 1980, the Roman Catholic Church uh, in every country except America is, uh, you know, is uh, communist from head to toe and uh, resp uh, responsible for the death of over 10 million people. 
and the greatest murderers the world has ever seen in the last hundred years were either involved or trained by Rome. And it goes all the way back to the Counter-Reformation. We talked about France, and of course France was Louis XIV back in the 1600s. And then, of course, Henry VIII was in England. Uh, in France, during the, this time, Napoleon in the 1800s, Roman Catholic. Uh, Louis XIV was Roman Catholic. Henry VIII was Roman Catholic, so he wanted to get a divorce, and then he became Church of England. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, uh, the perpetrator of World War I, Roman Catholic. Uh, Lenin in the 1920s that brought about the, uh, the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, trained by the Russian Orthodox priesthood. Uh, 15 million people killed with him. I guess the greatest murderer in the history of the 20th century, without a doubt, would be Joseph Stalin. And uh, what Hitler did pales in comparison to what Stalin did. And uh, Stalin, most people don't know this, studied for the Russian Orthodox priesthood before he got into what he got into, and he's probably responsible for 250 million people. I mean, Stalin's favorite quote was that when one person dies, it's a tragedy. But when a million people die, it's just a statistic. <laughs> and he pretty much lived by that. And uh, he had a great philosophy. He'd been a great Baptist preacher. About every 30 years, he went through his country, and anybody over the rank of a major was killed, took to the gulag and was killed. He made sure that he stayed in power by executing anybody in the military or anybody that was anybody who might oppose the threat. So every 30 years, he purged the military, he purged the government, and he killed anybody that, that got in the way. And I have an excellent series of uh, videotapes on the life of Stalin. It's just incredible stuff. And it gives you some real insight to it and shows you how that in the end, he was getting ready to do another purge, and this time they took care of him and they poisoned him. And uh, it's a, you know, history's incredible. I mean, just really good stuff. Uh, obviously, Adolf Hitler comes into effect in, the, in World War II, and he's responsible for, you know, 6 million Jews, 28 million Russians, and God knows how many everybody else. I mean, uh, they, 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 their earth weighed a little less when these guys were done with it, I guarantee you. Um, you know, all of his henchmen, Adolf Hitler's an interesting guy because uh, he's a great type of the Antichrist. The number of the Antichrist is 666. We know that from the Bible. If you ever saw a copy of Adolf Hitler's party uh, number uh, when the National uh, Socialists got together and started the Nazi party, they didn't have a lot of members, so they kind of, when they got their little cards that they carried, you know, that made them part of the Nazis, um, they all uh, had numbers on them. And um, willingly so, the God of the Bible is the God of history. Adolf Hitler, on his card, his number is 555. And that's because the next one's going to be 666. In fact, you can go right through history, and you can find 111. You can find who was 222, 333, 444. Adolf Hitler was 555. That was his party number. And that's no accident. If you're paying attention, history always teaches you the lesson because history always repeats itself. In our day and age, from, from the New Testament times, from, uh, uh, there, have been, there, have been, uh, there have been five types of the Antichrist for you and me to follow what's going on. Adolf Hitler was just the last one. The next one will be 666. He'll be the real one. And then the one after that will be 777. That'll be the real, 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 real one. That'll be Christ. But that's just how the thing works. 
And uh, he had 12 apostles around him, just like uh, uh, Jesus had 12 apostles around him. And those 12 men were the ones who did all the work for him, just like the 12 apostles did for the Lord. It's uncanny when you put it all together. Uh, you had uh, Theodore Ike, who ran the camps, the concentration camps. Uh, he was the commandant of Dachau. He's a Roman Catholic. Heinrich Himmler, who set up the camps and to persecute and wipe out the Jews, what was called back then the final solution. Uh, he's Roman Catholic. His son, believe it or not, was a Jesuit priest. Uh, our own FDR, you know, many people love Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He wasn't a Catholic, he was an Episcopalian. And uh, FDR got the blood on his hand just like everybody else. You know, Stalin had an interesting philosophy. And his philosophy was that once you were, once you were tainted by the West, then he could never trust you again. And at the end of World War II, uh, we liberated many of the POW camps that the Germans had that had Russians in them. I mean, the Russians, uh, you know, uh, they took many, 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 uh, uh, Germans took many, many Russian prisoners. In the Battle of Stalingrad alone, they took over 90,000 German prisoners when the 6th Army fell apart and von Paulus lost his command there in, in the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, out of that 90,000 that went into captivity, only 3,000 ever went home. And the rest of them died. And there's some credible books out on that stuff. But Stalin had a policy that he did not want. If you had been, you had been a communist and a soldier in the army or whatever, and you were taken prisoner, he felt like that, that you had betrayed yourself, and therefore, by being part of the West, you had tainted yourself. Therefore, he could never trust you. So anybody, you know, our POWs, when they got liberated in the... In the Stalag's prison camps, they all went home. <laughs> when Stalin's prisoners came back, he killed them all. And FDR knew this. And uh, they knew this. And what happened was that we had liberated over a million Russian prisoners from the German POW camps. And uh, these Russian prisoners were being repatriated back to the Soviet Union. We loaded them on ships. We took them back, and American GIs testified to this. That uh, and, and we all knew it, FDR knew it, that he knew that Stalin would kill these people, but because Stalin demanded them back and was now the beginning of the Cold War, and we were trying to party with the Russians, FDR just signed an order to send all these Russians back. Many of them begged. Many of them had to be dragged, and American soldiers said that when they got off the ship and they got outside the city, you could hear the gunfire while they were killing them and executing them uh, right off the ship. One million of them. And we knew about it. Our president knew about it. But because of the political alliances that's going on, See, and of course, uh, it's it's all part of it. Roman Catholics, as long and 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 their counterparts, are the bloodiest murdering killers you'll ever find on planet Earth. They talk about and they like to turn the corners on it. You know, they talk about Baptists. You know, being hate mongers. Let me tell you something. I don't know in the history of the planet one Baptist that ever killed a hundred people, ten people, uh, let alone six million people. But more Catholics do. And that's, a, that's not a very pleasant thing to talk about, but that's, that's just the way it is. You had Mussolini in the 40s and the 30s. And, of course, he's Italy. You had Franco. He was in Spain, Roman Catholic, Mussolini. You had Korea. 
And of course, the North Korean, the South Korean, they split uh, at the end of World War II. And a lot of what happens that brings up, most people don't even understand this. A lot of what happens in Korea and a little bit later on Vietnam, uh, is, again, is because of, of, the, of World War II. Once the, uh, once the Allies, who were victorious, uh, they all had the Dutch, the French, um, England. They all owned Korea, Thailand, Vietnam. They were all, that was their colonies. And during the World War II, when the Japanese were threatening of all of that, then, uh, you know, these people fought the Japanese and were victorious. Well, at the end of World War II, uh, these colonies that are owned by Dutch and the French and the English, they all come back in and say, okay, let's pick up where we left off. And the people say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. We fought for our independence against Japan. We don't want you back in here. And they said, well, we're going to come back. Well, if you come back, then we'll fight you. Now, that's how Vietnam started. See, Vietnam was under French rule. When the Japanese come in, they occupied Vietnam and Thailand and all those places. So the Vietnamese and the Chinese and all those fought together to fight the, fight the, the Japanese. Well, at the end of World War II, the French come back in and say, well, we want to take it back. No, the, 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 the Vietnamese said, uh-uh, you ain't coming back. And that began, the Vietnam War began between the, the Vietnamese and the French over the fact that they did not want the French coming back in. Now, the Vietnamese were Buddhist. The French were who? Catholic. So the Catholic Church wanted their colony back. They didn't want them back. America got into it to make sure that the Roman Catholic Church got her colony back, and we lost 25,000 American boys. That's the way it works. Once you understand history and you see it from the Bible standpoint, your life will never be the same again. I mean, you just, you don't believe anything anybody tells you anymore from the system. I mean, you just don't. When uh, Diem was put uh, as the uh, president of, of, of uh, South Vietnam, Diem was trained by the Jesuits and the CIA in Georgetown University. The CIA, our CIA went in, killed the guy that was in there, put Diem up, and then Diem, a Roman Catholic, comes to the place where he's taught by the Jesuits, put in there by the CIA, and by this time the Roman Catholic Church run everything in America, and, of course, they don't want the communists to take over the South because they wanted to come back to the Roman Catholic Church, and it becomes a battleground and a bloodbath, and Diem was turned into a mad dog, and he's, he's persecuting all the Buddhists. That's why they're dumping gasoline on themselves and burning themselves. He's trying to make the whole thing Roman Catholic, and uh, that's how we got into it. And, you know, and uh, then when he got out of control, then the CIA goes back in and disposes of him, Oh, this country's been involved in every mess you could ever be in. And then we wonder why uh, people like bin Laden hate us. All you got to do is know a little bit of history. You know that this country and its politics and its CIA and its government is just as corrupt and filthy as anybody out there. It's got its own agenda. And many times that agenda was the agenda of the Roman Catholic Church. It was back in the 50s and the 60s, anyhow. And uh, it's just, it just endless of what goes on. We got Castro. Down in Cuba. And uh, he's Roman Catholic. We got the 1916 to 1907 race riots in America under the pretense of Martin Luther King. 
one of the biggest communists uh, the world has ever seen, and uh, under the banner of let my people go. You know, I've always thought it was interesting and in how stupid people are in America. Here's a black guy going around down in the South using a phrase out of the Bible that's over there in Exodus when Moses went to Pharaoh to let my people go. And it's a phrase that he borrows when God's people were in bondage. And when you study the passage and get it all together, here's a black guy who's a communist using a biblical phrase, let my people go. And when you study the passage in Exodus, it was the black people, the Egyptians, that were putting God's people into bondage. It doesn't make any sense unless you have the Bible. Then it all makes sense. And of course, uh, you know, uh, all of Europe in time goes, Central America goes, country by country it falls. And, uh, you know, uh, Central America goes, uh, with, uh, goes, goes communist, Roman Catholic. It's one after the other. And uh, we find that uh, uh, the Jesuits teach you and the Roman Catholic priests uh, teach the theology of, 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 of revolution, revolution theology. And uh, that basically means that you heard Reverend Wright, the big deal was that he was preaching revolution theology. Well, let me tell you something. Reverend Ruth and theology didn't start with Reverend Wright. He's a, he's a Johnny-come-lately. Revolution theology started with the Roman Catholic Church, and it started in Central America. And the teaching was that Jesus was a revolutionary. And the Roman Catholic Church taught that if your country goes against your civil rights, that you have a right to stand up and revolt and take up arms against your country and overthrow it because that's what Jesus would do. And that's, that's liberation theology. And that's exactly liberation theology. The theology that liberates you by a point of an AK-47. And, uh, you know, the joke is that uh, uh, save people, they watched all this on TV and through the news media. And uh, because somebody stole their absolute and couldn't figure it all out, uh, they had to wait till some dumbbell like me came along to just believe the book to clue them in. And boy, let me tell you something. If it takes somebody like me, God got to use somebody like me to show you the truth, we're all in trouble. I mean, uh, but God's people are blinded to it. They're blinded to it. We also go back and we see Europe as a breeding ground for the humanistic philosophy of humanism. And we see it in all the different areas. And philosophy is a compound of two Greek words. Philo, or philo means to love. Sophia, philosophy, means wisdom. And she was the Greek goddess of wisdom. So the compound of the word philosophy is a combination of two Greek words, to know wisdom or to love wisdom. And uh, you're going to see that uh, the great humanistic philosophers um, go all the way back to, uh, to the Greeks. The Greeks have always been, even to this day, are credited with being the, the society that was the supreme society. The Greeks reached a point in their time from the world standpoint where they, uh, they, they, they were the... They were the, they were the they were the desire of every nation to be like the Greeks. Even today, in all of our educational systems where you go to college, and colleges are to be areas of learning, and they're set up for people to go to get a higher education and a higher learning. Even today, the, to symbolize the Greeks, 
the sororities and the, and the places where that they they get the together uh, are all all Greek word delta kappa beta whatever, and uh, because it all goes back to the Greeks, and of course uh, just like the Greeks, most colleges today are nothing but fornicating, drug infested uh, booze parties, just like it was with the Greeks. But uh, you know, that's another message we'll have to get a little bit later. But it all starts with three major philosophers that come out of the Greeks. And the first one, of course, is Socrates. And uh, he lives about 469 to 399 B.C. He's a sex pervert and a homosexual. Uh, He taught knowledge is a virtue, that the more you know, uh, the happier you are. Of course, that's completely contrary to the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. You know, we have Plato, who lives about 427 to 327 B.C. All Plato's teachings are a jumbled mess of teachings that never worked for anybody. We have Aristotle, 384 to 322. He was so into philosophy, he wound up being a suicide, worked for him. And it's these three guys who are held up uh, from the Greeks but that unregenerate man, and of course we work this through the devil, that leads to around the time of Christ, the theater of learning has, stre- has moved from the Greeks to Alexandria, Egypt. And we've talked about this before, uh, that at the first coming of Christ, the great university of Alexandria, which was burned down at some point later, was the greatest single point of education on planet Earth at that point. It had it had equaled and excelled uh, the the Greeks. And of course, we see that uh, this uh, aspect of it, and in, in where, where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle destroyed the teachings of the Old Testament, because they all have copies of the Old Testament. Notice they're in the time period or the times of the Gentiles in Daniel 2, where these guys all destroy the Old Testament when it gets to Alexandria at the time of Christ, these guys get their hands on the New Testament and they destroy it. So now we have both testaments completely corrupted. And the greatest humanistic philosophers start out uh, where uh, Christianity uh, is going to head uh, when it all breaks down, and that is Alexandria, Egypt, which is going to move into Rome. And we have guys like we've talked about Origen, we've talked about him before. Origen, uh, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Pantanus, uh, all of these guys are the early guys that are, are shortly after Christ, anywhere from before Christ, during Christ, after Christ. And uh, Origen lives about 184, brings us up into the middle of the second century. And then, of course, we know that from him come, uh, uh, come the, uh, the, Roman, the Roman philosophers, and they take what Alexandria gave them, and of course, Alexandrians got it from the from the from the Greeks. The Greeks got it from the Babylonians, and it just goes all back to Genesis chapter ten, really. Then we have Augustine, who was a great Roman Catholic philosopher. We have Alcuin, uh, who's another. Uh, this is he's in the seventh century. We have uh, Anglingum, uh That's in the around one thousand A.D. And then, of course, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, 1255 to 1274. Many high schools are named after him. You know why high school, Catholic high schools are named after him? Because he's the philosopher. He's a teacher. See? So they call him Tom, uh, Thomas Aquinas or Aquinas High School. 
because he's, that's in honor to him as being a teacher. He was a philosopher. These guys are called the Christian philosophers. And, of course, it's out of this group that the Jesuits come from. And the Jesuits basically take all of the knowledge that uh, the Babylonians gave to the Greeks, the Greek gave to Alexandria, and Alexandria takes it down to Rome. And they fashion all of their stuff based on, on this, and then they bring this into Europe. And these men give way to the great uh, European thinkers. Uh, and this is what brings in humanism today. We call it liberalism, whatever you want. This is where our government's at today. This is where the Nancy Pelosi's, the Harry Reid's, the Barack Obama's, and all of the liberals uh, from the left, this is where they all come from. This is where we, they all were trained by the Jesuits. They all were trained in this system. And uh, all, the re, all the educational systems in the world, look at the men that we're going to talk about here as uh, great teachers, and it, it, they form the aspect of it. Thomas Hobbes, 1588 to 1679. Uh, George Berkeley, we have a school out in California, Berkeley, uh, named after him. 1685, 1783, one of the most liberal, godless places. All of these places are. Uh, they're connected with it. But all these places are just absolutely, totally against everything that has to do with any semblance of right or wrong or anything that goes along with it. Uh, David Hume, 1711 to 1776. Christian Wolf, uh, 1679 to 1754. Uh, Spazona. 1632 to 1679, Voltaire, uh, 1694 to 1804, uh, Feuerbach, uh, 1804 to 1880, planet Earth, I guess. Uh, you have Bertram Russell, who lives 1872 to 1970, one of the greatest God-denying atheists, communists, uh, that uh, had a hand in this country's uh, politics back in the 20s uh, that you're ever going to find. You had John Locke, uh, 1632 to 1704. Uh, Friedrich Hegel, 1770 to 1831. Thomas Paine, uh, 1737 to 1809, and then brings us up to uh, Karl Marx, 1818 to 1883. And Karl Marx is where we get Marxism, communism. Karl Marx, Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, uh, right up to where we're at today. And uh, from these men are formed the teachings of the educational system in the 20th century in the United States of America. And this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens when uh, uh, it just it, it, it starts in Europe. They kill Europe, and then it moves to America and throughout the world. And then we add to that, and and these guys, you know, and then you take add to that that the Bible's gone now. The neo-evangelicals, the uh, uh, the uh, neo-orthodox and the charismatic who haven't got any got the sense God gave a goose to figure anything out about the Bible. And then you add to that the Muslims coming on the scene and taking over. And, uh, boy, you can see the problems that we're in. And this is why it's the way it is. Bertram Russell. 
first-rate atheist and a communist who promoted international socialism defined philosophy in the following manner. And I put this in there because I thought, you know, he speaks for them all, basically, when he says this. It's a classic statement. He says about philosophy. It is the supreme authority because it unifies all sciences. It has no absolute truths and no certain assurance of what is hypothesis. It liberates prisoners who are held captive by common sense. Now, this is his statement. This is what philosophy does. It liberates you who are held captive by your common sense. And if there's ever a place that we see that working today, it's in America. Because there is no common sense in America anymore. He goes on to say, without philosophy, we would take things for granted. And as soon as our approach, uh, as soon as we approach life philosophically, we find even the most everyday things lead to problems and possibilities which enlarge our thoughts and free them from the tyranny of custom. Now, by custom, he means uh, the Bible and any moral teachings. That's what he's talking about. And, um, you know, by now, by the mid-1800s and the 1940s, this kind of reasoning has uh, filled the educational systems of America. And you see it everywhere. It'll be in the University of Florida. It'll be in Harvard, Yale, Berkeley. Uh, University of Southern California, Princeton, University of Chicago, Ohio State, KU, uh, Kent State, Penn State, Notre Dame, Texas A&M, all shot through and all completely destroyed. Uh, A quotation by West Florida University back in the 90s when I got this said, this is on on their department, their philosophy department. Philosophy seeks to give a deeper meaning to all areas by making such areas part of a meaningful whole. Philosophy molds all phrases, phases of human knowledge into one meaningful whole. And that meaningful whole is the bottomless pit, if you want to get down to it. And uh, though they were not spelling it H-O-L-E as I am, they were spelling it W-H-O-L-E, but anyway. By 1900, the Bible's on the way out. And it's on the way out because Europe has completely gotten rid of it. What happens in Europe about 30, 40 years later begins to take place in America. And we'll see how that happens later. But in the midst of all of this higher education learning uh, being introduced to young men and young women uh, that lost sight uh, of the warnings uh, of the absolute. The Bible told you very clearly that there's two warnings in your Bible that better be heeded. And the first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, which is called science, falsely so-called. And the second one is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. In the book of Colossians is the book in the New Testament. It lines up to the Laodicean church. And it's a warning against philosophy. And, of course, you've got on top of that the book of Ecclesiastes, which goes through every philosophy that man came up with. And Solomon, you know, got through it, dissected it, laid it out, nailed it for what it was before Freud had it syrup taken out of his formula. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it pretty much stands for itself. The second thing was science. The word science is the Greek word for Gnostic. Uh, we know that the word Gnostic means to know. Science is the Greek word that means to know. So it's no, it's no wonder that from 1600 to 1900, we see the great strides of the advancement of science. Science and philosophy are a lot alike. They both have no foundation to rest on, unless it's the Bible. We got rid of the Bible. 
They're, they, uh, they are the end result of Gentiles who in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, are professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. All this science and philosophy brings back to our old nature uh, the God of knowing. This is exactly what the devil approached Eve with when he wanted to get her to fall. All three of them, or all, all of them have three basic things. They all invent their own theories. They all invent their own terminology that they use to talk and define things. And they all become their own gods and religion. And uh, Charles Darwin, in, uh, Orange, in his Orange of the Species, uh, he's called the uh, father of, of evolution. And yet Charles Darwin, as I already stated, I think, I told you, studied theology at Cambridge University in England, which by the time he was there was completely infested with the Jesuits. And that's exactly what happened. Coming up through the Reformation, you'll find that, that Cambridge and Oxford were the two baskins of Bible truth. But by the time the Reformation is 200 years into it, they have been destroyed. And... Uh, the religion of evolution and philosophy. It's all the same. And uh, it goes, evolution goes back to a guy by the name of a Greek philosopher whose name was Aximander, who lived all the way back in 300 B.C. He taught evolution. It wasn't Carl, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, Darwin that come up with it, but things never change, you see. When the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, he means exactly there's nothing new under the sun. It all goes back to a common thread. And when you need the Bible, you have that. And um, the, the religion of evolution, much like philosophy, goes back to the Babylonians. Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates all were believers of evolution. Where did they get it from? They got it from the Babylonians. Where did they get it from? They got it from the devil in Genesis chapter 10 with the first Gentile kingdom. So... You know, the person who doesn't follow the absolute standard of the Word of God will have a tough time discerning what's old and what's new. And like the wisest man on earth that ever said, there's nothing new under the sun. You just got to take some time to be able to see it. Darwin, like the rest of, his, of the guys, that just gives us a bad uh, variation on a classic theme. He just repackages it, that's all. Men had forgot about it. Men had, he comes it up with a new idea, and everybody embraces it like it's a new deal. And, of course, it's not. And uh, the fallacies of evolution are just absolutely uh, ridiculous. And, of course, we don't have, we're not, our goal is not to get into that tonight, but evolution has absolutely nothing to stand on. It's completely, totally against every law of nature, science, uh, that every scientist ascribes to. Uh, evolution goes against it. But as long as it's against God and the Bible, unregenerate men will take it. And uh, it's just like the Catholics and the Muslims. They may hate each other. Uh, they may go back and, 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 and loathe each other over the crusades. Uh, but at the end of the day, they will put aside their differences and they will pick up arms hand in hand, sing Kumbaya, and go kill the Jews. Something never changed. Some things never change. And uh, all Europe swings into this gray blob without any truth, shapeless in form, meaningless in thought, with no absolute standard or reason, but with, with, you know, with, with enough scientific theories and philosophy theories to sink a battleship. 
And this is what destroyed Europe. And this was a direct result of the Jesuit movement in the Counter-Reformation to get rid of truth through those four areas that we talked about. Uh, and boy, uh, it moved right on into America. And, uh, you know, science, philosophy, religion, and education... When we look back at it in the secular world, uh, this time period is called the Age of Reason. Will Durant, who is an unsaved historian who wrote numerous volumes on world history, uh, he wrote a book on the Age of Enlightenment. And of course, it is the great minds that come out of Europe. And the age of reason and the age of enlightenment, whenever you hear it or hear somebody talking about it, is nothing more than the Europe dumping the Bible, going after the Jesuits' teachings that bring man. And you see everything, everything in history during this time. I mean, you see that when, when Bach and Brahms began their, their, their writings, it was a period of time when then Europe was tender to God. And their music reflects God's glory. But then it moves from that period. As the, this time period moves on, it moves from that period to the, to the naturalistic period. It moves through the, uh, the, uh, every, uh, the common ordinary man that he glorifies himself. And it just completely degenerates. Art does the same thing. And where artists pictured great pictures of Christ and the things of the Bible, now it's uh, new bodies, and sculptors do the same thing. Everything goes back to man, basic, old nature, where everything he glorifies is about himself, whether it be music, whether it be art. Even in Europe, in the architecture, you see that going back to the Greek and Roman columns that they want to build because they want to recapture what in their minds is that great society. And, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 3 uh, tells us that the basic problem with man uh, wanting to be like the gods uh, is exactly uh, what the problem is today. And that's what the devil attacked them on. Uh, he wanted to give them the ability to know, and of course they fell for it. And all this affects Bible Christianity, you know, but what is the common denominator that basically burns the clutch out of the Philadelphian church age and brings in a laodicea and church period and slams the door is these areas overriding the Bible and then them getting rid of the Word of God. And with the rise of education and knowledge in the 1700s, the 1800 and 1900, and the humanistic principles of philosophy and the sciences all coming at it at the same time, producing the great thinkers of history, the leaders of dead churches, non-biblical groups that went back into apostasy after the Reformation, fall into the humanistic philosophy of religion. And this is exactly what the Oxford movement wanted. And uh, all of these churches came out of Rome during the Reformation, and now we see all these churches going back to Rome. Church services and preaching become as boring and meaningless as, and as empty as the scientific theories and the theories of philosophy. In the areas of higher learning and secular schools, they take on a dead formalism, which is, is perceived as the uh, state of the art. Religion goes the same way. And uh, you remember the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield and Wesley. Remember that at one time, Princeton, Harvard, and Yale were Bible colleges to train missionaries to the American Indians. 
The idea of religion being a philosophy just like the rest of the philosophies followed right on the heels uh, of the Great Awakening in America. And it comes from Europe. And this is why this is why God gives America seven great awakenings to get in what God wants to get done. Because the pilgrims are not over here and Jonathan Edwards uh, is, you know, one of the things that Jonathan Edwards had done and, and Whitfield did is that they're, they're here in the 1700s. America has been now here now for 80, 90 years with the pilgrims. And what has happened in that 100-year period is that in Europe, again, the count of the Reformation came the new concept of Unitarianism. There is no God. Christ is not God. Nothing is real. It's all spiritual. That started in Europe, and it had come over into America. And that's really why God gave the first great awakening. And what Wesley and, and, and Wetfield and those guys did was shake this country back to God because of the Unitarianism that was coming over from Europe. And it was just one thing after the other that the devil moved this way. And as long as we kept the book, we had something to work with. But it overwhelmed us. And when the Whitfields died and the great preachers died, and slowly but surely this country <coughs> went the same route of philosophy, education, religion, science, <coughs> it was the death rattle that killed <coughs> American Christianity. And um, that's, just, that's just the way that it worked. In a little while, we'll go back and we'll see the destruction of the Bible itself. I think it's very important that you see that and understand that. <coughs> but for now... <coughs> Let's look and see how all three areas of science and philosophy religion fit into this section and fit together. All three are based on tradition. All three claim no absolute truth. All three teach, no, uh, teach an evolution approach to, uh, to their thesis. You're going to see that philosophy, science, and religion, as it sets in Europe and now as it sets in America, all follow the same line. There is absolutely no difference. It only looks different on the outside. Things never change. When you look at these three, you'll find that philosophy as science and religion are based on tradition or theories. You'll find that none of them claim to be an absolute truth or have any absolute truth whatsoever. And you'll find that all three teach an evolution or an evolutionary approach to their hypothesis or their belief or their teaching. Science teaches man's getting better and better. Science teaches that man is in a process of evolution, that he started out as a one-cell being and then through evolution developed himself to where we're at today. Philosophy, on the other hand, says man is getting better and better. He brings all the elements of his being to a common good through philosophy, therefore getting better and better and better. Religion says that man is bringing in the kingdom through working for peace and helping the social needs of man by defending his human rights. Of course, a religion that follows Darwin's theory of evolution, that man is getting better and better as science and philosophy, will have to have an evolving Bible, won't he? So to get along with his pet theology, we have to have the RSV that evolved to the ASV, that involved the new ASV, that involved the NIV, 
that involved in the New King James, right on down the line. In other words, the Bible has to keep evolving and getting better because your religion is evolving, your philosophy is evolving, and your science is evolving. This is so evident that when one studies the great Bible teachers of the 1850s on, we see uh, the peer pressure that uh, European teaching and higher education puts on the teaching of the Bible. Very clear. I've told you before that we have Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth back there in a bookstore. It's an incredible book, and it's a good book, 90% of it. You're going to find that uh, Clarence Larkin, when he writes his first couple of chapters on the creation, you might as well cut them out with a razor blade and and start your fire with them in your grill, cook some steaks or something, because they're absolutely worthless. Why is that? Because he was living in a day and age in that period of time where if you believe that, you know, if you believe that the uh, the actually thing in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 2 took place, you were laughed at. If you believe they were really sons of God that came down and angels cohabiting and having sex with women and producing giants, you were laughed at. And the theme of the day, much as it is today, don't laugh at me. I'm somebody. And to be laughed, they lost the concept of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it's the foolishness of preaching that pleases God. Not your higher education and, and maintaining your respectability. Let them laugh. He who laughs, laughs, laughs best. Let them laugh. No big deal. But they couldn't do that. Because they all wanted to be sell books. They all wanted to be invited to speak. They all wanted to be recognized as scholars. Another one that does it in a big way is a guy by the name of Henry Morris. Henry Morris creates the Creation Research Foundation out in California. And you know, these guys don't want to be laughed at. They want to be recognized as accredited and therefore, that's why many, many, many Bible scholars today in churches, they, they feel that they have to go the extra mile uh, to get accredited. Otherwise, people don't take them seriously. Let me tell you something. I could give a fly and flip whether you take me seriously or not. It doesn't bother me one bit. When you've been in hell for 150 million years screaming your lungs out, it won't change a thing. I really don't care. The Bible's the Bible, truth is truth. I've never been swayed by that. But of course, people are today. They wanted to be recognized as scholars and great educators. I would never want to be recognized as a scholar or a great educator. I'll probably never attain this in my life, but I would like to go down in history as a great preacher. Someone who just took the book, took the truth of God, and whether you liked it or not, got in your face and shoved it right up your nose. That would be my great Legacy. Maybe I'll never get there. I ain't mean enough, ain't sarcastic enough. I'm working on it, though. I'm working on it. They wanted to be recognized as scholars and great educators and couldn't maintain that respectability of scholasticism if they believed the Bible the way we believe it and the way it stood. And I've been in these scenarios where people of higher education have laughed at people, called them hillbilly preachers, Call them, uh, you know, and make fun of them because they simply believe the Bible. And in some cases, their motive was to win the scientists and educators and to gain acceptance uh, to make uh, the Bible more palatable to the average person who believed those things. And some people look at that and say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is the fact that show me in the Bible where Jesus ever softened the message so we could reach anybody. The original term, my way or the highway, didn't start with you. It started all the way back at the first coming of Christ. Jesus said, 
narrow is the gate and straight is the way. Few be there to enter in. I mean, uh, it's his way or the highway. When he went to somebody, it wasn't to bring it down to their level so they would, it would be palatable. He made it as rough as they could. And of course, that's exactly how it, 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 it went. And uh, it didn't work very well. And uh, it, it's easy to see how things began to get out of, out of control. Now, here's five great truths we'll end with tonight. And you'll bring this up here, and, uh, and, and, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at this. 300 B.C., the Greek philosophers taught that there was no absolute truth, and everything was relative. They got this from Babylon, 600 B.C., and then back from Genesis chapter 10, where the devil instituted it back there in Genesis 3. The second thing, 4 B.C. to 313 A.D., Come up to time a little bit. Pagan Rome, with all the pagan ideas from the Greek philosophers back of 300 B.C., our previous one, have now taken that and mixed it with Roman garbage. And now they have over 500 different gods, both of these groups from which we uh, get uh, all of our philosophy. Both groups, the Greeks and all that, represent the great pagan, drunken, fornicated idolater the world has ever seen, the Roman Catholic Church. Both Greek and Romans taught the same thing. There's no absolute truth. This is the central theme that you find coming up through every one of these things. The Greeks didn't believe it. Pagan Rome didn't believe it. The Roman Catholic Church didn't believe it. From 313 A.D. to 1588, we see the Alexandrian Christian philosopher Origen, Clement, and Augustine take the same crap and make it Christian in the Roman Catholic Church. And they did not believe that they had an absolute truth. From 1588 to 1850, after the Reformation, Rome goes underground, what we're looking at tonight. And they begin to counter the Reformation by infiltration of the educational system of Europe, which produces the great humanistic philosophers, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, and humanistic philosophy. 1850 to 1985, right up to 2006, Christianity officially become just one of the sciences. It was in 1888 that the Southern Baptist Convention, which was the biggest Baptist group in America that had the truth, dumped the King James Bible in Sarasota, Florida, in their national meeting and adopted the RSV. At that point, Christianity officially become just one of the sciences. In the next 20 or 30 years in the Southern Baptist Convention, they believe the Bible's fables, Adam and Eve didn't happen. Noah's Ark's a fable. They have come to the point. By 1970, every in America, every Christian college, every Christian college in America is teaching its young people what the Greeks and the Romans and the philosophers were teaching from 308 B.C. to 308 D. Bob Jones University, Liberty University, Tennessee Temple, BBC, Cedarville, Calvary, Midwest, Pacific Coast, Grand Rapids, Moody Bible Institute, Pensacola Christian, Hiles Anderson, are all teaching what Yale, Harvard, Berkeley, Kent State, Penn State, and all the rest are teaching. The great pastors from these Christian schools are teaching their people every Sunday what the unsaved college professors are teaching their students every day. And God's people come out just as confused as unsaved people because they all believe one common thing. 
whether it's the Greeks, the Romans, or the European philosophers, or the Bible colleges, or the Baptist preachers in this town, they all may agree and disagree on all kinds of things, but one thing they will all say is there is no absolute truth. Every one of them. If you went to the average Baptist church in this city and sat out with a pastor and says, is that King James Bible the absolute perfect word of God? You'll get a no. To them, there is no absolute truth. Just like there was no absolute truth to the Greeks. There was no absolute truth to the Romans. There was no absolute truth to Constantine. There was no absolute truth to the Roman Catholic Church. There was no absolute truth to the great minds of Europe and the great thinkers and the age of enlightenment. And there's no absolute truth today in God's people's hearts and minds. There's the problem. As I said, God's people come out just as confused, as unsaved people, and just as disillusioned uh, as the kids at any secular school in any state in America because they both are teaching there is no absolute truth. Welcome to the Laodicean church period. The hallmark of the Laodicean church is there is no absolute truth. Nothing ever changes It just moves back through history and all goes back to a common source. I say it in closing that the devil, the devil wanted two things. He wanted to get everybody on planet earth into his church. And when he couldn't get everybody on planet earth into his church, he he was just as happy as could be to leave you go to your church, but just carry his Bible when you go. And the end result is the same. We have a Christianity and a world that has, does not believe they have an absolute standard of truth to go by. Europe doesn't have it. America doesn't have it. Churches in America doesn't have it. Nobody's got it except you. All right, well, we'll hold up there. Next time we'll move a little farther in this. Got to get it all through for you. Let's have a word of prayer.